Well, I'd like to invite you to turn your Bibles now as we look to the Word of God in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 22, as Paul has written this particular letter filled with gratitude towards God for what He has done in the Thessalonian church, that even though He was there for a few weeks, their lives radically changed to become a testimony to all the churches in Macedonia as they testified of uh, their faith in Christ as what God has done and change, changing their heart, and Paul has been encouraging them to excel still more while still, in addition, instructing them as to what will happen in the end times. And near, we're near the end of this letter, near the end of this letter in which Paul gives various exhortations, various instructions for the Thessalonian believers to be mindful of. In particular, godly attitudes, godly attitudes. And so our scripture reading will come and begin in verse 16. The Word of God reads, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our God in heaven, we give you thanks for your precious and enduring word. We pray, Father, that it would dwell richly within us, that our hearts might sing for joy, and that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we might see great and wonderful things from thy law. In Jesus' most precious name, amen. Those who work in public transit as bus drivers can have difficult days and difficult times. Each day is not always the same. I'm sure, as even you might know one, there was a front-page article in the San Francisco Chronicle about a Metro Transit driver. Her name was Linda. Linda Wilson Allen was her name. And it had this front-page article about her because she loved the people that rode her bus. She would learn their names. She would wait for them if they were late and then make up the time later on her route. And she did a number of things that were just outstanding that one might not expect a bus driver to do. For example, there was a woman in her 80s named Ivy. And Ivy was an elderly lady. She had some grocery bags, and she was struggling with them. And so Linda got out of her seat and went out and helped her with her grocery bags, sat them down on her bus and helped her into the bus. And all of that sort of a thing, such that now she will let other buses pass by just so she can ride Linda's bus. Or Linda saw a woman named Tanya at a bus shelter, the article tells us, and Tanya was at this bus shelter. She was new to the area. Linda noticed. She noticed that she was somewhat lost, and it was almost Thanksgiving, so Linda said to Tanya, quote, you're out here all by yourself. You don't know anybody. Come on over for Thanksgiving and kick it with my kids, and now they're friends. Linda has built such a community among all her riders that they'll offer her time in their vacation home, 
They'll bring her potted plants. They'll bring her floral bouquets. They found out that she likes to accessorize her uniform with scarves, so they'll bring her gifts such as that. Many times you think to yourself, boy, those who drive buses and public transit, they have to deal with cranky passengers, people who are late, buses that break down, traffic, jams, gum on the seats, people who put graffiti on the back of chairs, all of that sort of thing, not to mention some of the attitudes that come, as well as some of the violence that may occur. You might ask yourself, how does she have an attitude that is so loving and giving? The article goes on to say, quote, her mood is set at 2.30 a.m., Imagine if you had to get up that early every day to work. She gets down on her knees to pray for 30 minutes, the Chronicle says. There's a lot, of, lot to talk about with the Lord, says Wilson Allen, a member of Glad Tidings Church in Haywood. When she gets to the end of her line, she always says, that's all. I love you. Take care. People wonder, well, where can I find God? Where can I find the church? Have you ever heard a bus driver say that? I love you. Take care. Behind the wheel of bus number 45 riding through San Francisco, you'll find somebody who has such an attitude, a godly attitude, a positive attitude, an attitude which is joyful, an attitude which is grateful that landed her on the front page of the San Francisco Chronicle about her Christian testimony. Do you know people like that, people whom you would look at and say, they have such a wonderful attitude towards life. I wish I was more like them. I wish I were more cheerful or someone else who was so positive no matter what happened, who seems to rise above their circumstances, who doesn't seem to let things frazzle them, and they seem to be people who stand out in a sea of people who have sour attitudes. It's a godly attitude that lets somebody do that. It's a godly attitude that testifies to God's power in someone's life. It begins with a life in the early morning hours for Linda as she bows her knee in prayer. It's the attitude that Paul encourages the Thessalonians to have, an attitude about how they live their Christian life. And he reminds them in this particular passage of particular things that he wants them to maintain. We've been looking at the past few verses Doug Nichols spoke last week on various relationships we have, those who are leaders to the people and those people to the leaders and people between themselves and the church, how they are to have particular attitude towards one another and the things that they are to do. And today we look at our attitude as it is exemplified towards God and exemplified in a Christian, godly Christian life. And the attitudes are very easily laid out here as it says in commands, to be joyful, to be prayerful, to be thankful, not to quench the Holy Spirit, not to despise the Word of God, and to be discerning. And so we look at these particular attitudes, six of them today, and we ask ourselves, do these characterize my life like they might for Linda, or they might for whomever you might think is a positive testimony in this regard? The first thing that Paul reminds them of is that they are always to be joyful, always to be joyful. The text reads very clearly in two words, rejoice always, rejoice always. 
In the text, the word rejoice is an imperative. It's a command. You're commanded to be joyful. It's a command for Christians to be joyful. A Christian is to be characterized by joy, not characterized by crankiness or by grumbling, not characterized by bitterness or being cynical, not characterized by being a person who is complaining, not characterized by being stubborn or anything of that sort. They're characterized by being joyful. That is to characterize the believer. What would people say if they looked at you and they looked at your life? Would they say that that characterizes you? What would people say if they were asked, what would it take to make you a joyful person? You ask the average person on the street and they might have a typical answer that one might expect. Well, if I had financial security, I'd be joyful. Or if I had a stable family, I'd be joyful. If my kids would only listen to me, I'd be joyful. Or if I had a home, I had more friends. Or if I had no major problems, I'd be joyful. Well, people aspire to many of those things. It's natural to want many of those things. But those things bring us temporary happiness. As happiness comes because of our circumstances, and our circumstances can change from day to day, and we can be unhappy the next day. But yet, God provides for us joy in the Spirit of God. And deep down, people desire to have a joy, but they find it so elusive Some people just don't seem to have a very good life. Reminds me of the time I was standing in Lowe's. My hands were full. I think I had some, you know, paint or some joint compound or something like that. It was rather heavy. And I was just standing there in line next to this guy. And he was right in front of me. And I was standing there, minding my own business, not saying a word. And the man turns around in front of me, sort of a rough fella, and he irritatingly says to me, I ought to knock that smile right off your face. The cashier was shocked. I was shocked. I thought to myself, the guy must have had a bad morning. And I felt bad for him. And all I could do was stand there and smile at him. (laughs) He looked at me and he huffed off. Certainly anti-joy. True joy, on the other hand, though, endures. True joy that God gives to the Christian is regardless of what is happening in life. And it's an abiding sense that God and the believer, all is well. Abiding sense that God is in control as a purpose for all that happens. And true joy comes as a result of a life that is filled by His Spirit and the fruit that comes from the Spirit of God that controls a person's mind and their thoughts and their heart is that of joy. When your life is rightly aligned with God and your mind is rightly focused on the truth of what God has for you, then you'll have joy no matter what happens in life. One commentator writes, such a focus is possible because biblical joy comes from God. Not merely from superficial emotional response to positive circumstances. Christian joy constantly flows from what the believer continually knows to be true about God and about his eternal saving relationship to him, regardless of the circumstances. Supernatural joy is from the Holy Spirit. Thus, Paul lists it as an aspect of spiritual fruit. You know, perhaps no other letter in the New Testament exudes more joy than the book of Philippians. 
the book of Philippians. And at the very beginning of the book of Philippians, the apostle Paul pens a letter. He pens this letter, and his context is that he's chained to the elite Roman guard, the praetorian guard, under house arrest, and he writes these very few verses in the very beginning of the book of Philippians, verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, he writes to the Philippians. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Every time Paul thinks of the Philippians, he gives thanks to the the Lord in prayer, and he does it with great joy. And why is he joyful? Because in his mind's eye, he says in the text, he is reminded of their partnership in the gospel work, that they are believers, that they are a partner with him and that they will be perfected in Christ, that whatever God is doing, he will do, he will complete the work which he began in their life until the day of Christ Jesus. And all of this he gives thanks because they're partakers of God's grace. The things that bring joy to Paul's life as he thinks of the Philippians are the things that are eternal, not the temporary circumstances. He could be in the worst of circumstances. He was on trial. He was chained to a Roman guard, and here he's planning. If it were me, I'd be like, Mom, don't forget to bring some stew tonight, whatever it may be. And often we think to ourselves the temporal things that will make us happy rather than thinking to ourselves the things of God. Isn't it wonderful that they are with me in the gospel work Isn't it wonderful that whatever God is doing, whatever trials they're facing, they will come to the end of the race and God will make them perfect in him. Isn't it wonderful that they are a part and partakers of God's grace? Those are the things that bring joy to the heart of Paul as the Spirit of God reminds Paul of the things that he has been, the things that God has done. So the second attitude that Paul reminds the Thessalonians of is the idea of perpetual prayer. Not only are they to be joyful, but they're to be people who are people of prayer. Pray without ceasing. The call for these people who pray or to pray is precedented by Paul's own statement in 3.10. As we, he says, night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face. Prayer can happen anytime. It can happen at any place, no matter how busy you are. I was noting in Christian History Magazine, there was a testimony from an African-American woman who remembered how her mother, a mother, was a slave whose work schedule left little free time for anything else, nonetheless found time and strength to talk to God. My mother, she recalled, all the time, She'd be praying to the Lord. The woman said she'd take us children to the woods to pick up firewood. And we'd turn around to see her down on her knees behind a stump praying. We'd see her wiping her eyes with the corner of her apron, first one eye, then the other, as we came along back. Then back in the house, down on her knees, she'd be praying, unquote. You know who prays? 
Humble people will pray. Proud people don't pray. Proud people are self-sufficient. They don't think they need God. It's only those who humble themselves, realizing that they are utterly dependent upon God, that it is Christ who sustains their every breath, that they will pray. Living in the truth, the one who truly believes that God is great, truly believes that God answers prayers, truly believes that they are completely dependent upon God, truly sees themselves like a child needing the Father's help. They're incapable of doing anything apart from God. Pray. Proud people do not pray. The word pray is from prosukamai. It's the most common New Testament term for prayer. And without ceasing means constant. And the word defines prayer not as some perpetual activity of kneeling and interceding, but as a way of life marked by a continual attitude a prayer, unquote, a way of life that is marked by a continual attitude of prayer. It's talking with God throughout the day. We sin, we confess it. We thank God when we see his goodness. We praise God in our heart when we see things that are so wonderful and good. We speak with God throughout the day. We pray in our heart each and every moment. It's not difficult but it requires a continual awareness of the presence of God, of the power and our dependence upon God. Prayer continually requires that a person be humble enough to recognize that they are desperately in need of the help of God. So we're to be joyful, we're to be prayerful. Thirdly, we're to be thankful. In everything, it says, verse 18, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And you see, the precedent for this command of giving thanks was established far back in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there was the thank offering or the peace offering outlined for us in Leviticus 3 and Leviticus 7. And there was a thank offering that was given, and it was designed to remind God's people that everything that they had was from God. It was designed to remind God's people to be grateful to him, and they would bring a sheaf of grain, they would bring some oil, they would bring some wine as a thank offering. All of these things were symbols, symbols of the Lord's provision, tangible reminders of the believer's need to thank him regularly for his grace, for his mercy, for providing everything that they have. Now, the church today, we have an ordinance. We have an ordinance. We practice an ordinance called communion. And during communion or the Lord's table, we combine two elements, one of the thank offering and one of the sin offering as we thank God for Christ's death and his accomplishment upon the cross. We have the thank offering in which we give thanks for that which is a provision, also symbolic of the body of Christ. The cup as well was the sin offering symbolic of the blood of Christ that was shed on the cross for our sins. And we observe this ordinance and are essentially presenting a thank offering. We are giving thanks to God. We are giving praise to God. We are proclaiming his death until he comes again. And the Apostle Paul commands this in 1 Thessalonians 5.18 to be continually grateful for everything, that our continual gratitude should be connected to everything everything that occurs in life, no matter how pleasant or difficult as it is. Ephesians 5.18 reiterates that command to be thankful. 
5.18 to 20, it says, And do not be drunk with wine, but be filled by the Spirit. Do not be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. And then it says, Always giving thanks for all things. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, even the Father. No matter what the situation or the trial, there's always a reason by which we can thank the Lord. Now, it doesn't mean all things as in all. We don't give thanks for sin or other things that the Scriptures condemn, but it means in all circumstances, there is always something to give gratitude to the Lord for. This has been a season of wildfires, especially here in Washington State. You've probably been watching the news. A number of years ago, there was a huge fire that swept through Southern California. The AP report came out a number of years ago, and it was a fire that was north of L.A., all the way down to the Mexican border. It was in October of 07. 500,000 acres were burned. A half a million people displaced from their communities. 2,000 homes destroyed in the blaze. But there was one town, one town called Rancho Bernardo, in which that town there was a Presbyterian church. And in that church, there were 60 families that lost their homes. 60 families lost their homes, but the worshipers still met. They met on that day of worship, I think, to give thanks. One reporter noted, quote, they gave thanks for the big things, for lives saved, for families, for friendships. They also gave thanks for the small things, a hug, a shoulder to cry on. Barbara Warden was one of those fire victims. All she was able to salvage from the fire were three boxes of photographs and her grandfather's cuckoo clock, but she too was thankful. No one was hurt, neither in her family nor in her community. And on the Saturday before the Sunday service, Barbara searched through her home's ashes and she discovered a sundial that her husband had given to her. The following message was engraved on that sundial. It said, grow old along with me. The best is yet to be. And Barbara mused, that says it all, doesn't it? We have a lot to be thankful for. Can you imagine that? Imagine everything that you have in your home burned to ashes because of a fire. All your possessions, all your souvenirs, all your memories. Would you be able to come on Sunday to sing and give thanks to the Lord? For He is good and His kindness is everlasting. Thanksgiving was in the heart and the memory of Paul. He remembered and thought of the things, I'm sure, how God had worked through the Thessalonian church, how God had continued to challenge them despite the fact that he had only ministered there for a few weeks, four or five weeks or whatever it may be, and yet God had changed their lives. He had given thanks, I'm sure, even though there were detractors that had come into the church, some people who were not so supportive of him. He was so very grateful for the church that he wrote to them and continued to write about the good things, because it's so often easy to see all of the negative things when things are difficult. 
One author writes, Having a genuine desire to remember and focus on the goodness, kindness, and successes of others does not involve denying their weaknesses or shortcomings, but rather looking past them. The Holy Spirit prompts believers to appreciate others' love, generosity, and compassion, and to forget the rest. On the other hand, a person who is constantly focused on the negatives, faults, shortcomings, and slights of others is a person not controlled by the Holy Spirit and perhaps an unbeliever. Bitterness, resentment, a critical spirit, holding grudges, and the like are works of the flesh, not of the Spirit. Are you a person that when one would look at you, they would say, they are so very grateful, so very thankful for everything that they get. They recognize that they deserve nothing and they are a grateful person. So, Paul reminds them here, to be always joyful, to be ever people in prayer, to give thanks in all circumstances, and fourthly, not to quench the Holy Spirit. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. Verse 19. Now, some commentators will look at this and immediately think of the charismatic sign gifts. Some think this has to do with the prophetic utterances that were given. But Paul here in this particular context is not making some apologetic defense of the charismatic sign gifts. Perhaps better to see this as in the list of as a logical flow in a particular context and the flow of thought that would make sense here. Paul is telling them what? Always be joyful. Always be prayerful. Always be thankful because this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus and there is only one thing that will rob you of your joy. One thing that will make you a prayerless individual. One thing that will make you an ungrateful, crabby individual and that is sin. That is sin. Sin will rob you of your joy. Sin will make you a person who doesn't care about coming to God. Sin will rob you of a grateful spirit. It is sin that will quench the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the one who produces joy in your life. The Holy Spirit is the one who helps you to pray. The Holy Spirit is the one who guides you into all truth and produces within you a recognition of all that you have has been given by God. The word quench here refers to extinguish or stifle or retard, and it speaks of the effect of sin in our life. As Ephesians 4.30 reminds us, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. In Galatians 5.16, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. The effect of sin quenches the Spirit of God. It doesn't change your positional relationship. You're always a child of God if you are truly saved, but it does change your practical relationship as sin causes a break in that union or that fellowship that you have with God. Causes a relationship that is strained. 1 Peter 3, 7, for example, reminds husbands that they're to treat their wives with honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Sin causes us to have difficulty, not only in our relationships with one another, but it brings barriers in our relationship with God. So, when things happen to you in life, when difficulties come, we have a choice. We have a choice. How are we going to respond how are we going to respond? 
Are we going to respond by giving him thanks for even the things that we have? Even if our entire home was burned down, would we be someone who would be able to give thanks or to have that abiding joy that says, all is well with my soul? Or to have a heart that continues to pray to God? Are we going to possess an attitude that is sour, an attitude of discontentment, an attitude that is dishonoring to God, one that is ungrateful? The Scriptures remind us of the consequences of that choice, whether or not to look at things from God's view or to look at things from our own. Don't quench the Holy Spirit. Don't quench the Holy Spirit. Fifthly, we're not to despise the Word of God. Do not despise prophetic utterances. Do not despise prophetic utterances. Verse 20. Now, in the New Testament church, before the full revelation of the Word of God was given, it seems to have been the case that in the Thessalonian church, there were prophetic utterances. What does that term mean? Well, in the New Testament, prophetic utterances could refer to the revelatory gift of prophecy in which people who were prophets could now reveal new revelation from God. They could either foretell the future or they could proclaim a word from the Lord and they would be prophets in the time as just as in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 11, 27 and 28, for example. That time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, it says. And in verse 28, one of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And it says this took place in the reign of Claudius. In other words, the time in which this was written, there was those who would be able to predict the future and tell what was coming. And the scriptures tell us that those who were true prophets, their prophecies would come to pass. That is how you would be able to tell. Some people today, though, they continue to propagate that God continues. God continues to enable them to foretell the future. They believe that they have either taken the position of an apostle, such as in the New Apostolic Reformation movement, or that they have the gift a prophecy, they can foretell the future, or that God is giving them revelation that is on par with the Word of God, that to disobey that new revelation would be in tantamount to sinning against God. And sometimes they will perhaps even use this passage when challenged as to whether or not that is true. They say, do not despise prophetic utterances. Well, don't be intimidated by them. Don't be intimidated by prophets who will come in fact, we've had some that have even come for a little while here who have a prophetic ministry, and there have been times when it's been a challenge as we don't hold to continuing revelation as if God continues to give us commands through some individual. One often, more often in the New Testament, this particular term, prophetic utterance, is a reference to the written word of God. It is a reference to the written word of God. Matthew 13, 14 refers to the prophecy of Isaiah, same term. Or in Revelation 1, 3, it says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy. Speaking of the book of Revelation, and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. And even in 2 Peter 1, 21, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. It is the written word of God that is in reference here. 
The principle is, don't despise the Word of God. Now, how do we despise the Word of God? We despise the Word of God by disobedience. That's one way we don't heed the Word of God. We despise it. When God commands, we are to obey. We're to obey the written Word of God. In fact, in the Great Commission, we're to teach people to obey. It says in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. It doesn't merely say teaching them all that I commanded you and leave it at that. It says teaching them to observe or to obey all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is not a book of suggestions for a happier life. This is not a book of of good ideas. It is a book in which God's commands are to be obeyed. Secondly, we are to be people who don't despise the word of God, not by disobedience or by neglect. By neglect. We can neglect the word of God. We can neglect the Word of God by teaching humanistic philosophy or ideas that come from the world. As Jesus points out in Mark 7, 7 and 8, he says, But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines of men, doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the traditions of men, verse 8. When we begin to teach things that are philosophically from a humanistic standpoint, just from what people may think, then neglecting the Word of God, we do. We can neglect the Word of God by selective obedience. By selective obedience, we choose to obey some commandments by, and neglect others. We can disobey, we can neglect by teaching humanistic philosophy, we can be neglect by selective obedience. Jesus condemns the Pharisees for doing just that in Luke eleven forty two. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and of every kind of garden herb, even the smallest things. They were requiring people to pay a tithe on, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are things you should have done without neglecting the others. Their attitude towards the word of God and despising it and neglecting the Great commands of God. So what about us? Do you despise the word of God? Do you avoid the word of God? Do you desire? Do you desire the word of God? Or do you disobey? Do you selectively obey? Do you neglect it? Do you teach other things that are from a philosophical, humanistic standpoint? Do you remember what God said to Joshua before he entered into the promised land? very well-known passage in Joshua 1.8, said, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Why? So that you may be careful to do everything, everything written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. The Word of God is written for us that we might be blessed when we follow and obey the Word of God. Do not despise the Word of God. So always be joyful. Always be prayerful. Always be grateful. Don't quench the Holy Spirit. Don't despise the Word of God. And lastly, be discerning. Be discerning. Hold on to what is good and avoid evil. Verse 21. But examine everything carefully. Hold fast to which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. The last attitude is that we are to be discerning. 
In context, it's likely in the relationships in which the people were peddling the word of God. Whether prophecies or proclamations in the Thessalonian church, Paul was encouraging them to examine everything carefully. Today, we have the completed canon, the word of God. We are to examine everything by the word of God, to test it, to see its truthfulness. That's what the word means, authentically examining everything to make sure that it is right and true, not wrong and false and bad. And in our culture, what is right and true from what is false is confused. There is no standard. One commentator noted that the British expositor D. Martin Lloyd-Jones He realized early on, this was 50 years ago nearly, that the church was drifting from spiritual discernment and explained how the postmodern culture had contributed to that reality. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, there is a very obvious reaction at the present time against intellectualism that is found among the students in America and increasingly in this country. Reason is being distrusted and set on one side. Following D.H. Lawrence, many are saying that our troubles are due to the fact that we have an overdeveloped cerebrum. We must listen more to our blood and go back to nature. And so turning against intellectualism and deliberately espousing the creed of irrationality, they yield themselves to the desire for experience, quote-unquote, and place sensation above understanding. What matters is feeling and enjoyment not thought. Pure thought leads nowhere, quote-unquote. If anything, that's our culture. Cultural tendencies only to become more profound how the culture has continued to weigh what is right and wrong depending upon how one feels. Often people let their emotions, they let their feelings dictate to them what is right and wrong, not objective truth. What is true needs to be a standard of objectivity outside of ourselves. Somebody feels a certain way in our culture since birth, that must make it right. That's what some would propagate. Or if someone is offended by the gospel or offended by biblical truth, you're wrong because you are so insensitive, so intolerant. If you don't experience God, something is wrong because, well, I don't know, but something is wrong. Some marched to the drumbeat, as some friend called me. Uh, I hadn't talked with them in a decade, and they called me out of the blue. We had a great conversation, but I remember them saying this phrase about someone, and their advice to them was, well, do what you feel is right for you, rather than the biblical standard of do what pleases God and obeys the Word of God, whether you feel like it or not. Right and wrong is not determined by how you feel. Right and wrong is not determined by what makes you happy. Right and wrong is not determined by your conscience, which is a guard, not a guide. Nor does it come from what is culturally normative. Once an issue or decision is examined, examine it carefully in light of the Word of God. And we hold fast to what is good. We abstain from every form of evil. To hold fast means to embrace wholeheartedly, to take possession of it. And we hold fast to that. We love what is good. That is what our heart is to say. And in contrast, to abstain, which means to hold oneself away from every avoidance of evil teaching or behavior. 
doctrinal and behavioral discernment is in view here, both the things that we believe and know as well as behavior. When a believer is immature, like a child, they're blown about, the Scriptures say, by every wind of doctrine because they're not discerning. Someone who may not have been a Christian for very long or they're not biblically literate or maybe they've been a Christian for a long time but don't know the Scriptures, they will swallow everything that comes along their way, much like a child who is just crawling along and everything they see they put in their mouth. Some things look so good but are so toxic. I've met some Christians older than I who have gone to Bible school who shock me when they enjoy listening to one or more popular health, wealth, prosperity gospel teachers and they have no clue. They have no clue that anything is wrong. False teachers never teach that which is purely false in and of itself. There's always some sort of idea that might be good mixed in there to make it sound good. But thousands of Christians will flock and sit in front of their TV or listen to something on the internet without a discerning mind, without a discretionary mind that asks themselves, is this biblical? They'll wrap their hands around things that include universalistic ideas or the teaching of no health theology or gender identity issues, which is hot today, in which some Christians just capitulate and say, oh, it's not so important. What's important is that we get along. Not only is there a lack of discernment when it comes to doctrine, it also affects how people live and their choices and behavior as well. I've had a number of conversations with people in the past, where people try to argue this idea that they can do anything, anything, because Jesus spent time with sinners. Jesus spent time with sinners, so I can go and do anything I want. I can go to clubs, I can go to adult entertainment places, whatever it may be, because Jesus spent time with sinners. And little do they recognize that the context in which Jesus spent time with sinners were in contexts that weren't, they weren't actively engaging in sin. He ate with them, he spoke with them in public, he met with them, he ministered to them, he sat by the well and talked with them, whatever it may be, but he didn't certainly go and entertain and go parting and carousing with them. He didn't avoid them, but he spent time with them in contexts that were not temptations, contexts of sin. They fail to think about what kind of testimony they have, and here this particular passage says, abstain from every form of evil. We're called to be people who are holy, to be separate. That is what marks a believer, makes them different than the world, and that's what attracts people to a life. Not that you're so much like the world, but that you're different in a godly way. That is why people are different. That is why people stand out, because Christ makes the difference in their life. That is why a person like Linda will end up on the front page of a San Francisco newspaper. It is because of the power and the work of God in a person's life. Would somebody be able to look at your life and say, that person, look at how joyful they are. Look at how grateful they are. Look at how they sustain in their testimony and how they live their life. They are Content, they heed the word of God. They're discerning. They're discretionary in how they live their life. 
Is that how somebody would look at you? Somebody who rejoices always, who gives thanks, who is a person of prayer, who doesn't quench the Spirit of God, but obeys the Spirit of God when they heed the Word of God and they are somebody who thinks biblically and loves what is good and hates what is evil. Is that you? I sure hope so. I want that to be for all of us. That is what the Word of God declares. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks. Lord, our hearts are so easily swayed by the temptation of sin. Father, in our weakness, we pray for your strength, that we might be people who exude with joy and gratitude, who praise you in our prayers, who hate sin, for we know that you hate it, who love your word and who think biblically. I pray, dear Father, that you would help us to embrace that which is good and true, to despise that which is evil, and that we might live a godly life, that we might stand out in a world that desperately needs you. In Jesus' most precious name, amen.